welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we, uh, we come before you and we're excited about a couple weeks here, Christmas coming, and uh, we just pray, Lord, that as we go through this series and we look at these responses to the birth of Christ, we pray, Lord, that we would respond with joy and praise and obedience and love to your Son. Lord, we pray that this morning, as we open up your word and we think about what kind of a king your Son is, that our hearts would be thrilled to offer him all of our worship, all of our obedience, all of our allegiance, Lord. We pray that we would more and more um, learn how to live in your kingdom by your commands in such a way that we would, our families and our homes and, and even our own personal lives would be just a, a bubble of the kingdom for people to observe and know that Christ has come to be king. And we pray, Lord, for all the churches that are gathered around. I want to specifically pray for this morning, uh, Canyon Lake Community Church that's just down the street, Lord. We pray you bless them as they're doing Advent. We pray for Grace Bible Church meeting over at uh, MSJC. Um, we pray for Mountain View over there meeting um, off of uh, McCall, Lord, as they're in a new building for the first year. Um, they're able to celebrate Christmas in their own place. We pray, Lord, that you'd be blessing that. We pray that you'd bless their ability to reach out to their neighbors and invite people in. We pray that they'd use that building mightily. And we thank you this morning for your love for us, for your church, that you've made us a family. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the third week here of our series, uh, looking at five different people, five different types of people respond to the announcement of Jesus' birth. And we, the first week we did Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and how he responded. And then we looked at Mary last week, and this week we're looking at King Herod. And I know you guys are probably like, okay, he cheated a little bit, he's not in Luke, he went out of Matthew, what's up? I really needed to add somebody that had a strong negative response to Jesus. I think it's important for not all the responses to be positive, because in this world not all the responses to Jesus are positive. And so you look on your card, you know, you can see which one's Herod. He is the not-stoked king here on the edge. Um, about Jesus's birth. And and that passage that Elisa read to us is that famous contrast between um, King Herod and the Magi, King Herod and the wise men. They have a totally different response. And Matthew puts them in the same chapter for a reason, so that we can see the contrast between the two of them. So first we want to ask, like, who are these wise men? This word for wise men here is a Greek word, Magi. And the Magi weren't these sanitized uh, kings and wise men that we normally think of at Christmas time. The Magi were weirdos, okay? The Magi were a term for people that practiced astrology and dream interpretation and study of sacred texts and magic, okay? These are very unusual wizard-like people, right? These are your new age hippie magician sorcerers that have come to find Jesus. They're dabbling in all sorts of things that were specifically forbidden in the Old Testament. These magi would be people that would be despised by the orthodox religious of Jerusalem, which is one of the ways we know, guys, that this story wasn't made up. Matthew is writing specifically to talk to Jews about the Messiah. It does not help his case that one of the first visitors to the newborn king 
are astrologer, hippie, weirdo, magicians, okay? The Jews are not like, oh, okay, good. Then he probably really is the Messiah. And like, this doesn't help. He wouldn't have put this in here unless it actually happened, right? These first visitors. Um, these magi most likely came from Babylon. It says they came from the east. And they came after seeing a star. They saw some sort of sign in the sky that indicated that the new king had been born. Um, the Magi, like I said, they studied sacred texts, and they um, had access probably to certain parts of the Old Testament. About 500 years before uh, God's people, the Jews were in, in captivity in Babylon, and they would have still lived there. There would have been still some Jews living there. And so these Magi living in Babylon would have access to parts of the Old Testament. A lot of people think that the passage they were probably thinking about was in Numbers 24, 17. It says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, or a king's staff, shall rise out of Israel. It's a text that many Jews saw as messianic, is about being their long-awaited coming king. And um, this star that they're following, I think most likely is probably not a natural star or an alignment of planets. People have a lot of theories, and I'm, I'm not willing to fight over it or anything, but I doubt that it was like a natural star or a comet or anything like that, because it seems to guide them fairly specifically to where Jesus is, and it's kind of hard to imagine how a, a comet might be able to do that. They ended up very close to where Jesus is. They end up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only about six miles away. And they've come here to find the king. They probably came some, if they came from Babylon, they would have traveled 800 miles to Jerusalem after seeing this star. Which is one of the ways we know that they, that they weren't there. Like if you have the nativity scene and you have like Joseph and Mary and the baby and you have shepherds and you have your wise men, they're probably not there yet. So if you want to make it more accurate, you like put them in the next room or you put them outside your house or something like that. They're on the way because they would have come weeks later because if they went 800 miles at 20 miles a day, it would take them at least 40 days to get there. And so they're on their way. You need to kind of alter that whole thing. And by the time that we know too, by the time the Magi got there, it says that they, had, they found Jesus in a house. So by the time that they came, um, the family is resting in an actual house instead of a stable. Um, and, and one of the things to notice in this is the irony of this, because you have Herod, this king, who is religiously Jewish, who's six miles away from where Jesus was born. He's the builder of a temple, and he misses Jesus. You know, that when Jesus is really revealed, he doesn't want him. It's ironic. And then you have these, these hippie, magician, astrologer people that come 800 miles. They're religiously completely off the map. They're super far away. And they're also just unclean from the perspective of the Jewish people. And it's these people that find Jesus. And that should be a warning to all of us. All of us who have been very familiar with Jesus, very close to Jesus, around Christmas time, you know, we hear the story, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The things that are described in the Gospels about Jesus' birth, God coming as a man, are not yeah, yeah, yeah kind of things. It shows that we become too familiar and we're, we're not alert to who he is. We don't want to be like Herod. We want to be like the Magi. This star that led them, it led them to the general area. And they end up in this Jerusalem, Bethlehem area. And they go to Jerusalem to look for the baby, this born king. Makes sense because that's the capital. That's where you'd look for a child born king. And they're asking around town. And in verse 2, it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's their question. They're looking around. And, and King Herod gets word that they're looking. And he invites them in and talks to them. Who's King Herod? Well, historically, we know from other historical sources that Herod was an incredible man. 
He was incredibly smart. He was incredibly successful. But he was also incredibly dangerous. He was incredibly paranoid. He was incredibly cruel, as we see in this text. And he was incredibly lucky. I mean, this is a guy that lived to be 70 years old. He had reigned in Judea for 32 years. He was a successful, lucky, shrewd kind of person. One of the ways that he lasted so long was by killing off his rivals. And we know that he even killed off, he killed off one of his wives, he killed off three of his sons. I mean, if he got wind that there was some sort of intrigue against him, whether it was very factual or not, he was very quick to act and to kill him. He even killed, like I said, his wife and his sons. He was so ruthless to his own family that, that uh, Caesar Augustus was quoted as saying, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. That's what Caesar Augustus said about Herod. Why? Because, well, he knows he's not going to eat his pig, right? This guy's Jewish. He, he know, and we know from the rest of the passage, guys, that, that King Herod, he summons the religious experts of that day and brings them in, and he says, where is this baby supposed to be born? I don't know where this baby is. They're asking for a baby. Where is this baby born? And, and look at verse 5. It says, they told him that the baby would be born in Judea, in Bethlehem. So the prophet has written, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And they say, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, which makes sense, the birthplace of the greatest king they ever had, King David. And then Herod says slyly in verse 8, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring word that I can come and worship him too. We know enough about Herod to know that's not his intention. Verse 9, After listening to the king, they went away, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and fell down and worshipped. And they opened treasures and they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they know what Herod's up to. Verse 16, if you drop down there, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled the words of Jeremiah, a voice in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeps for her children. She will, refuses to be comforted because they are no more. In a town the size of Bethlehem at that time, we're talking maybe a dozen kids that would fit that description, maybe more. But such savagery, guys, is totally in keeping with Herod. Some people are like, well, there's no historical record of this. Maybe it never happened. It was a very small amount of kids for one thing. It's terrible, but it's not hundreds. And also, this totally fits Herod's character. This isn't like, well, you're such a nice guy normally. I can't believe you'd do that. No, this is the kind of guy that kills people regularly. In fact, shortly after these events, Herod knows he's going to die. He died maybe a year after this. By the way, this is not the same Herod that killed John the Baptist. This is an an earlier Herod. It was a great family, you know, doing all kinds of wonderful things. Um, But when he, about a year after these events, knew that he was going to die, he summons a lot of influential Jewish people to his deathbed. And he had instructed his daughter and, and her husband that at the moment he died, kill all these people. And the reason was this. Herod wanted there to be genuine tears at his funeral. Okay? And he knew that most people would be happy he was dead. But he figured, if I take a bunch of people with me, people will really be weeping at my funeral. I mean, this is the kind of guy that Herod is. This guy is unbelievable. 
And thankfully, they didn't carry out the orders. They were like, you know, once he died, they were like, we don't have to listen to him now. He's dead. So they didn't do it, thankfully. But guys, the Christmas story, this reminds us that the Christmas story is not like a, a saccharine, sweet, sentimental story. I think a lot of times we make it that. We make it, and which is fine with your kids, you make it a nice, sweet story. But this is a gritty, real story. It's a gritty story because it happened in this real world, in this very gritty world. Um, and now, Jesus wasn't killed in this slaughter because Joseph was warned, and they flee, and they go to Egypt, which was actually only 90 miles away. It's kind of surprising, and everything's kind of close over there, it seems like, but 90 miles away. And they didn't return until they had received word that Herod was dead. And so in this series, we're looking at how five different groups of people reacted to the birth of Jesus. And with Zechariah, we saw that he, it, with him, it was fear and doubt became joy and praise. And with Mary, we saw that she responded to the birth of Jesus with courage. You know, that she was willing to risk everything for the Messiah. Well, what is Herod's reaction? Verse 3 says, when Herod heard this, the birth of Jesus, he was troubled. His response is that he's troubled. He's troubled and he has violent resistance. And we might want to ask ourselves, why did Herod react like this to the birth of Jesus? Why is his response like this? And the reason is, it's a clash of kingdoms, guys. This is about a clash of kingdoms. If you look through this chapter, chapter 2 here, you'll see the word king over and over again. You'll see the word Christ, which means king. And you'll see the word ruler. You'll see kingly gifts. This whole chapter is set up to show you that there is a clash of kingdoms occurring here. Um, Jesus was, it says in verse 2, born king. Not born to become king. He was born king. When he was born, he was king. It wasn't like, oh, he's born, he's going to become king. He's king at his birth right? And that's a real threat to Herod. Herod has a kingdom, and Herod's going to defend his kingdom. And one thing we need to realize about ourselves this morning, because you think like, well, how do I relate to Herod? We all have a kingdom. Every one of you has a kingdom. Your kingdom is everything that you have say over, everything that you exercise control over. We all have a kingdom. Well, the kingdom that could be potentially threatened, right? Even our kids have a kingdom. You know, when my, my daughter Ellie, who's 10, when she invites me into her room to see what she's done with the place, she's inviting me into her kingdom. She's showing me the things that she's done in her kingdom. And it's, it's important for our kids to know that they have a kingdom, right? And, that, and it's important for them to know that we respect their stewardship of their kingdom. One of the goals of parenting is to show that it's a good thing to live under good authority. That's one of the things we're trying to show them, is that it's a good thing to live under good authority. And they only live under our authority or our kingdom for a short time. Ultimately, we want to show them and, and teach them how to submit their kingdom to God's kingdom. It's important they know they have a kingdom, and it's important that they know that they need to submit their kingdom to God's kingdom. Guys, we all have a kingdom. And we all defend it intensely. I could prove this to you. I could prove this to you. Any of you ladies, if I walk over right now and I just start going through your purse, you have a kingdom. You'll defend that kingdom. If I invade that kingdom, I'm a dead man, right? Even worse, any of you guys, I could come over and mess with your phone. You have a kingdom. You don't want your kingdom messed with, right? We defend our kingdom. King Herod had a kingdom, and he doesn't want to submit his kingdom to Jesus' kingdom. We have a kingdom, and sometimes we want to defend it from Jesus as well. That's an important thing. That's how we're similar in this way. There's a little Herod in each one of us. There's some bit of resistance in each one of us to this king that was born to rule over us. To, to some part of our hearts, there's this part where we're not totally excited that there's a king other than us, and we'll defend our kingdom. A little Herod in each one of us, whether it takes the form of saying, you know, I don't believe that Jesus is God, I don't believe he's king, I don't, you know, I don't believe in anything, any of that about Jesus. You could say, well, I'm, just, I'm spiritual but not religious. What does that mean? 
spiritual but not religious. It means I still want to be king, right? Because if you're, what that means, spiritual not religious, is I haven't picked a particular or I haven't found or I haven't sworn allegiance to a particular king. I have religious feelings. I do, religious, I do spiritual things. I'm not, spiritual, I'm not religious. I don't have a king. I still want to be king. It's, it's a form of wishing Jesus was never born, which is a little Herod-like, isn't it, right? Um, or it comes in the form, and religious people aren't immune to not wanting Jesus as king, you know? It comes in the form of saying that I believed in Jesus as God and Savior, but not king. Very common in our day. Fancy term, uh, antinomianism, no law. I, I don't obey the commands of God. I, I believe he's God. I believe Jesus is God. I believe he's Savior. Real thankful for that. But I don't really have to live as, with him as king. It's another way we reject him. And we all have little pockets of antinomianism, little areas where we go like, okay, this, this, and this, but not this part. This part is a part where I don't really trust him to rule in this area. This is an area where I've figured out a better way than, than the king's way. There's a little Herod in each of us, part of our lives that we don't want to obey Jesus as king. And the only way that occurs, guys, the only explanation for that is, is we've not yet seen how wonderful a king Jesus is right? We've not yet grasped how wonderful a king Jesus is and how wonderful his kingdom is. Otherwise, we'd be like, take it all. I'm ready. Every area, you organize it. I'm terrible at living. You know, you be my king, right? And so this morning, what I'm, what I'm hoping for, what I've been praying for is that God would show us the beauty of Jesus as king and his kingdom so that we would enthusiastically submit to his whole kingdom, like the Magi, that we would offer him costly worship in the form of whatever obedience he, he requires. Um, because, guys, King Herod's response is, is deliberately placed here against the Magi. And what we're supposed to see here is that Herod is not wise in his response to King Jesus. The wise men were wise. King Herod is not wise. Because it turns out that King Herod needs exactly the kind of king Jesus is. Herod needs Jesus' kingdom, not his own, desperately. First, Herod needs Jesus' kingdom because Herod was a slave king. When we hear the term king, we often think of a sovereign, somebody who can do whatever they want, they can say whatever they want, they can do whatever they want, that's totally in control. Herod wasn't that kind of king, guys. Herod was a guy that worked for the Roman Empire. He wasn't a sovereign-type king. He was a slave king. He was a king on a leash. He was a king enslaved to a higher power. He's enslaved to Rome. He's enslaved to Caesar Augustus. He can't do whatever he wants. He's a slave to a bigger kingdom. Israel was a conquered, oppressed land, and Herod was given a little piece of it that he could rule, but he's ultimately under the thumb of Caesar. Israel and Herod, guys, needed a king with a kingdom that could liberate them from the evil kingdom that had enslaved them. Herod desperately needs that kind of king. And the same is true for us, guys. Same is true for us. We don't like the idea um, of having any king but ourselves, especially as Americans, right? We made that clear, right? A couple hundred years ago, we made very clear we're not into kings. We don't want anybody to be king except for us. Um, we, as Americans, we worship freedom. But the truth is, is that apart from the liberating kingdom of Jesus, we are not free. You think you're free, but you're not free. We're enslaved, we're in bondage, we're oppressed. Just like Israel and Herod, because, guys, our world has been overtaken by an oppressive kingdom. It happened in Genesis 3. Human beings were originally created to rule, to be kings and queens, to rule over God's creation. But when those first people rebelled against God's commands, another king came in, 
right? The evil one. He came in and reigned. And so now, no matter how much control you think you have over your life, no matter how much control you think you have over other people's lives, you live under an evil king and an evil kingdom if, you, if you're not in Jesus' kingdom. Um, Jesus said it this way. He said this to the Jews. He said, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we'll become free? Which is historically just completely inaccurate, right? Like, we're Jewish. We've never been enslaved to anyone. It's like, okay, there's the Babylonians, there's the Egyptians, we got the Romans. Like, what did you guys miss, right? And Jesus responds to him this way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You're not free. And then Paul, he vividly gives a description of this freedom. He says this, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do the things I want to do, but I do the very things I hate. For now, uh, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Sound familiar to any of you? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Guys, just like Israel, just like Herod, we're enslaved, and we should be longing for the announcement of a king and a kingdom that would set us free. We should be like, great news! Should have been great news to Herod. Herod needed Jesus to be king because he was a slave king. Herod needed Jesus to be king because Herod was an insecure king. Very insecure king. Herod's kingdom was insecure. He could lose at any moment to any rival. Herod was an insecure king. Which is why Herod is so paranoid and ruthless, right? He's insecure. Everyone could threaten his kingdom at any time. And that's what we're like, guys. If we look for our security in our own achievements, in our own kingdom, it's a very insecure place to live, right? It, it, we become radically insecure people because our, our kingdom can be jeopardized at any moment. Our, our status and our power, like Herod's, can, can be lost to any rival, Everyone is a potential rival when you're, when you're living for your kingdom. Everyone's a potential rival for your, your power and your status. And we're an insecure people. We're insecure about status. I mean, Herod was super insecure about status. I mean, for Herod the Great, I mean, this guy's constantly building things. He's constantly trying to prove things. Builds a temple. That's great. He builds a port in Caesarea. That's great. He builds palaces. He builds fortresses. The guy is a building machine. What's behind that? Status, right? He's obsessed. He's obsessed with status. We, too, can be obsessed with status, you know? And, and we defend our status through displaying the best versions of us and then comparing ourselves to others. That's what we do. It's a super common. Maybe you're like, not me. That's fine. But we display the best versions of ourselves and we compare ourselves to others. And the crazy thing is, in the 21st century, it's easier than ever before to display the best versions of ourselves and compare ourselves to others. We actually have devices in our pockets to measure our status, the update is called a status. Interesting. Okay? And I know it means status what you're doing, but it's certainly about status who you are, right? We carry these devices, and we can, we can use them to measure and update our status. We carefully display the best versions of ourselves, don't we? The, best, the right body, the right food we're eating, the right homes, the right trips, the right friends, the right kids, the right virtues, like crazy, you know, like, oh, okay, today there's this crisis, so I need to make sure everybody knows I'm on the right side of that, 
right? Display the right virtues. It's an obsession with status. And then the comparison game begins, right? And you can scroll through and compare yourselves to other people. It used to be, guys, that you would compare yourself, you know, if you were in the wrong frame of mind, you would compare yourself to others all day, and you do it to maybe the dozen people you saw that day. And probably half of them are in worse shape than you, and half are better, and you're kind of in the middle, right? Guys, now you can compare yourself to hundreds of the very best people displaying the very best parts of their very best day. Every hour. And you wonder, guys, like why social media makes people so radically unhappy. Some of you guys are like, no, it's fun, I'm having a great time. Fine. Research shows, though, that the rest of you are miserable. Why are you miserable? You're comparing yourself to, like, the A-team people's lives, right? And the best version of their best day. And you can compare yourself to hundreds of people an hour. That was never possible before. You didn't have all these people to, to display and compare yourself to. And it's no wonder, guys, that there is a strong correlation between hours on social media and mental illness, right? We're insecure kings, insecure about status. We're also insecure. Isn't this fun? Merry Christmas. We're also insecure, guys, about our power, aren't we? Insecure about power. You know, we can see from this chapter that Herod will do anything to defend his power, right? And we defend our power as well. Most of our unresolved conflicts in our family and at work and things like that, they're all about kingdoms and conflict, right? They're all about defending our power, right? We have power we need to defend. We're not willing to lose power. We will often be willing to lose family members before we're willing to lose power. We want to be king, right? Everybody wants to be king. That's the problem, right? Is that you want to be king, and so does everybody else you know, right? You wonder, like, how do we get along as well as we do, right? With these kingdoms constantly in conflict, we want to be king. Our feuds and our grudges are kingdoms in conflict. And they're going to continue as long as somebody won't humble themselves and give up power. That's the way it works. And the amazing thing is, you got a world full of kings, little kings, in conflict with each other. And in comes the ultimate king, right? In comes Jesus. God himself becomes, comes as a man. And it's so interesting to see what kind of king he comes in as and what kind of kingdom. How will Jesus come in this world with all these proud, insecure kings? And he does it in a totally different way. Jesus is a totally different kind of king. He has a totally different kind of kingdom. Jesus is a secure king, right? We're insecure kings. Jesus is a secure king. Jesus doesn't feel the need to defend his status and power at the expense of his enemies. Jesus is willing to lose power and status for the, expense, for the sake of his enemies, isn't he? Jesus gave up status. There's a really interesting verse at the end of this chapter. It says in verse 23 that Jesus went, lived in Nazareth, which is where his parents were from anyway, and that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Really interesting, right? Um, it's really interesting because... There's a huge drop in status there. I don't know if you guys get it. Bethlehem was a posh address, okay? Because it's a small place, but it's, you know, the nice suburbs of Jerusalem. This is where King David was born. This is posh, right? Nazareth, not posh, right? Nazareth is a place that, that Nathaniel said, what good could come from Nazareth? Guys, there's a lot of status to be gained or lost in your address. I know that when our family, when we moved from Marietta to Lake Elsinore, I was aware of a drop in status, Okay, as I'm making the purchase, I realize, like, this is a drop in status. Okay, I'll just admit it. it. Actually, I feel like when I'm on the phone or whatever, they ask me my address, and I give it to them. I feel a little tough every time I say Lake Elsinore, and then I'm like, Lake Elsinore, you know. <laughs> but 
there's a lot of status to be gained or lost. When God the Son became a man, he took the status of Nazarene. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. You know what else is amazing? There is no prophecy about the Messiah being from Nazareth. Check out what it says. That was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. A lot of people have been like, where? Bible never says that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. What does the Bible say, though? It says that the Messiah would be despised, which is exactly what it means to be a Nazarene. Right? There's tons of prophecy about Jesus taking on a low status and being despised. And that's what the prophets were talking about. And that's how him being from Nazareth fulfilled the prophets. So Jesus gave up status. Jesus gave up power. That exalted term that the Magi call him in verse 2, they call him king of the Jews. When's the next time in the book of Matthew that Jesus is called king of the Jews? His crucifixion, right? Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. The soldiers, they strip him and they put on a scarlet robe on him and they twist together a crown of thorns. It's a kingly scene that they're putting together, mocking him as king. And they put on it on his head and gave him a reed in his hand um, like, a, like a scepter. And they kneeled before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on and they led him away to be crucified. You guys remember the sign that was above the cross? Jesus, king of the Jews. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. He's a king who, instead of defending his status and power, he gave it up for us on the cross. Jesus isn't an insecure king like Herod, who has to kill his enemies to defend his kingdom. Jesus is a secure king who willingly died to give his kingdom away to his enemies. Isn't that amazing? Totally different kind of king. He's like Micah prophesied in verse 6, that quote from Micah, that he would be a shepherd king. Herod's not a shepherd king. Herod's an abusive king. Jesus is a shepherd king. And in John 10, Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Sounds secure, doesn't it? Isn't that awesome? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I pick it up again. I can do that. And that's what King Jesus did. He laid his life down for us, our sins on the cross, and then he took it up again. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Guys, Jesus is a secure king because Jesus' body came back to life. He's a secure king because he can't die. He doesn't stay dead. What do you do with a king that can't be killed? He doesn't stay dead. Herod dies, verse 19, right? And his kingdom's lost with it. Um, even the this, this Caesar, Caesar Augustus and people like that, they all pass away. Jesus is still alive and still reigning. He outlasts every single king. Jesus' kingdom is secure. No one can take it from him. His status and power can never be lost. And that's what you need, right? In this world of like insecurity, that's what you need. That's what you have if you receive Jesus as king. If you trust in Jesus as your king, savior, Colossians says that you will be delivered from the domain of darkness, that you will be transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You think about status, you think about power, think about having those be about you, that you've been delivered, that you've been transferred, into Jesus' kingdom, that you've been redeemed, that you've been forgiven, and no one can take that from you. That status, that security is something you can never lose. And it comes from his kingdom, not ours. 
Because if you're tired of like trying to build up your own kingdom and feel good about yourself, feel secure and safe and good and right on your own accomplishments, the good news of Jesus is that you can have redemption, forgiveness, be transferred and delivered by Jesus if you trust in him. And then you no longer have to display and compare yourself to others because your status is in Christ, not in your own achievements. Herod wanted to rest on his own achievements. You see where I got him. You, you no longer need to be in power, too, because the greatest power in the world is working all things together for your good. Talk about power. So you don't have to be in control. He's in control. And now, once you're in his kingdom, the cool thing is, is you get to learn to live in his kingdom. His kingdom isn't entirely future. His kingdom has come. It's going to come fully in the future, but we can learn to live in his kingdom now, and it's called discipleship. Discipleship is learning to do all the things Christ has commanded, all the things the king commands, and to learn to do it by the power of the Spirit and from a transformed heart. And that's something we get to do. Jesus teaches us how to die and give away our kingdoms to others. You know what this is called? Love, right? Love is dying to our own kingdoms and giving it away to others. And who better to teach us how to do that but Jesus? That's what discipleship's about. He's going to teach us how to do all those things. King Jesus and his kingdom free us from insecurity so we can love people. So Herod was a slave king. He was an insecure king. And you know what Herod the Great was too? He was a small king. He was a small king. Herod had a kingdom, a small patch of the Middle East. He had it for 32 years. King Herod, though, guys, was settling for a kingdom far too small. They called him Herod the Great. Hardly, guys when you compare his kingdom to Jesus' kingdom. Jesus was born king to receive a kingdom that would stretch across the entire world and all the way into eternity. Yeah, that's Jesus' kingdom, right? Jesus came to be a global king. That's why the Magi show up. They're kind of weird, right? They come from you know, 800 miles away, and they're from Babylon. and what all is. These, are, these are some of the first visitors to Jesus to show that he is not just king of the Jews. He's king of the world, and the world is starting to stream to him, and we see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus was born not to just be king of the Jews, but king of the world. And the Father said about him, It's too small a thing that you shall rule my people Israel. You shall be the ruler of the world. Jesus came, guys, to be not only the ruler of the world, but a forever king. It's really cool, and it's all throughout all the Christmassy texts that we read and a lot of the Christmas songs, is that he's come to be the promised king, the king that was promised to David. So David was promised that one of his descendants would reign on his throne. There's twofold um, fulfillment of that. First one is Solomon. But then it says later that that king that would be born from his line would reign forever. Human king reigning forever. Think, how can this be? It's certainly not Solomon, right? It's Jesus. Jesus is that king, that human king that was promised to reign forever. And Christmas is the good news that that king has been born and that his kingdom is now growing in this world and that it will fill the world and that it will have no end. This is good news. Um, Let me just show you, if you want to turn to Revelation 21, I want to show you what the kingdom looks like when it fully comes. I'm going to do a kind of a long reading here. So Revelation 21.1 says this. This is, this is, you know, no matter what your views on all the end time stuff and everything, we end up here at the very end where he makes the new heavens and new earth, okay? And in verse 1 it says this. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so this is um, heaven as it is now, where if you were to die now and you're trusting Christ, you would go, and you'd be in the heavenly Jerusalem. You'd be in heaven as it is now. What this text is saying is that in the future, heaven as it is now comes down to earth to make one place. Isn't that cool? That's the ultimate, right? And so it says that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Isn't that interesting? If you're to die now, you're going to go dwell in a place designed for God. Ultimate state is that God comes to dwell in a place designed for humans. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and he will be the, they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I make all things new also he said write this down this is faithful and true guys when you pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven you know the Lord's prayer that prayer request will be answered, and that's what it looks like when it gets answered. That his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that heaven and earth become one place, and that his kingdom would come fully. You will get that answered. And so when you pray that, pray that like knowing that's going to be answered, and it's going to be answered at that time. And then, so that's the world to come when his kingdom covers the whole world. But then look at the city, look at verse 22. Then I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Isn't that cool that God himself like lights this place up, that he's in the center? There's no temple because the whole city is a temple that we live in. We live in this city with him. And by its lights, the nations will walk. And listen to this. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. These are all the people that have submitted their kingdom to God's kingdom. And they're bringing their glory into it. That's including you. And the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But no unclean thing will enter nor anyone who does what is detestable and false. And so there's this kingdom. The kingdom has fully come. And there's some that are shut out of the kingdom. And if we're not trusting in Christ, if he isn't our king, we're shut out of that place. And he says, um, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so there's the, there's the earth and the, and, and, the, and the kingdom. And then we look at the city. And then what's cool is in chapter 22, you can look into the city. So let's look into the city now. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. So in the middle of this city is God himself. We can commune with him and hang out with him. And there's some sort of like a river coming out of there. And it says along both sides of it, it says are the, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. And his servants will worship him. And then listen to this. They will see his face. I, I would underline that. They will see his face. You'll see God's face. It's amazing. And his name will be written on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and there will be no need for a light of a lamp or the sun, for the Lord their God will be their light. And listen to this, and they will reign forever and ever. What human beings were designed for, right? That we would reign over the creation under God, worshiping him, enjoying his fellowship. Guys, King Herod settled for a kingdom far too small. 
It's as if God says to Herod, you could have that little patch of land and you could do your thing in it for a few decades if you want, or you could have Jesus' global everlasting kingdom. And he chose the short term, right? He chose something far too small. Have you chosen something far too small? Because our resistance to his kingdom is us choosing something other than his kingdom, right? Uh, Our resistance to his his reign is we're making a choice. Are we choosing too small? C.S. Lewis said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. You say, well, I have a strong desire for sin. You know, I have a strong desire to get some joy in this life now. Your desire is weak, actually. Going for all the wrong things. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered us. We are like ignorant children who want to go on playing with mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is what is meant by an offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Herod was far too easily pleased. I hope you're not. Hope you're not far too easily pleased. And it says, Jesus says, says to you today, you can go around fooling around with your anger. You go around fooling with your sexual liberation. You go, still just keep messing around with your self-centeredness and your creative bookkeeping and your feuds and your grudges and your approval seeking. Or you could have Jesus' global everlasting kingdom. Don't choose too small, guys. And now we can see why the people that responded to King Jesus with joy and expensive sacrifice were called the wise men, right? They made the wise choice. Their costly obedience was wise, and so is yours. It's definitely costly to follow Jesus. Anybody that says otherwise is trying to sell you something, okay? It's, it is costly. Um, salvation is free. It is a gift of grace. It is something that we cannot earn. It's completely Jesus' doing. But following him is costly. Jesus talked about that a lot. He said, consider the cost, right? And, but guys, no matter what it means for you to follow Jesus, no matter what it costs you in money or relationships or power or comfort or status, Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose, right? Be a fool to do otherwise. And now you guys can see too why when Jesus came preaching the gospel, he called it the gospel of the kingdom, He called it the good news of the kingdom. And the good news is, guys, is that Jesus is right now welcoming people into his kingdom for free, by grace, if they'll repent of their sin and trust in him. That offer is good to you this morning. There's no reason to wait on that. There's no reason to kind of, you know, I sell things on eBay, you get an offer. I'm going to wait a little while, see if I get a better offer. There's no better offer, guys, okay? You take Jesus today. You don't even know that you have tomorrow, do you? Right? You don't know. Colossians says that he will deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption and forgiveness of sins. It's the good news of the kingdom. Are you in? As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, it's a welcome to the table of the king. That's really what it's about, right? It's the king welcoming you to his table. And it's not our pledge to God of our faithfulness. It's him assuring us, guys, through the cup and the bread. And and the bread is gluten-free, so you don't need to worry about that. But through the bread and the cup, he is assuring us of our status in the kingdom. He's assuring us that he's welcomed us through his son's broken body and shed blood. He's assuring you that you are delivered and transferred and redeemed and forgiven. So it's an assurance to you, but it's also to fill you. Just as you take the bread and you take the cup in, 
when we take communion, we are being filled with kingdom power to love our neighbors and to glorify God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can just be done with our own kingdom building. It was exhausting. It was disastrous. We've done no good thing in trying to build our own kingdom and maintain our own power and status and whatever else we wanted. Lord, we've done no good thing in trying to um, build up our status before you, that somehow we could earn our way, that we could be made right. Lord, that's a silly project as well. We pray, Lord, that we would just, all of us in this room, that no one would leave this place without fully embracing your son as king. This is just such manifestly good news. And it's manifestly good news that you would teach us to live in your kingdom. Lord, we know your commands are good. We just know we can't do them. We pray that you would fill us so that we could learn to do all the things you've commanded, Lord. We know that you've given us your spirit who can work through us. Lord, help us to learn how to live in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we take communion, we pray that it would be both a benefit to us and, Lord, that it would be a blessing to you. We pray as we worship you and uh, we pray as we hear like Christmas songs, the good ones, the ones that are about you, this season, Lord, that we'd be just driven to worship even in a store, even in our cars, wherever, Lord, that we would um, take those songs that are actually singing of your son to be a little head nod from you saying, I see you. I notice you. I'm here. I love you. We thank you, Lord, for all these things, that you are a God of mercy and grace, and that you give salvation for free. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.